This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Stephen Watts specializes in cultural and intellectual history and that of the United States. He has authored a number of biographies on popular figures, including Magic Kingdom, Walt Disney and the American Way, The People's Tycoon, Henry Ford and the American Century. That book was chosen as one of five finalists for the 2005 Los Angeles Times Book Award in Biography. He also teaches history at the University of Missouri. His most recent work and the topic of our conversation today is Self-Help Messiah, Dale Carnegie and Success in Modern America. I've really been looking forward to this conversation with Professor Watts about Dale Carnegie, one of the most important figures in the 20th century in America, and important for reasons that go far beyond what most Americans may yet know. Professor Watts, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, delighted to be with you. Your book on Dale Carnegie uh, seems to be, in one sense, uh, arriving just as maybe the first generation in a modern American experience uh, now arrives on the scene relatively unaware of who Dale Carnegie was and why that name is so familiar. Why this book now? Well, this book arose out of my own research agenda, and um, over the last 15 or 20 years, I've been writing biographies of uh, important figures in modern American culture, and uh, it so happens that I had been teaching Dale Carnegie's book in a couple of my classes for quite some time, and uh, as I looked into his life at one point when I was looking for a new book to begin, uh, I I gathered pretty quickly that there had not been a real uh, full-scale, full-length biography of him written, and uh, to me it just seemed like a natural kind of call. Um, I think uh, it sort of happened, the context that you mentioned is sort of happenstance, because really the project was internally uh, generated on my part. Well, that probably is true of the best projects, where an author just becomes uh, very much interested in something, and that makes for the best book that leads to an interested readership as well. I have to tell you how I came to your book, and that is Uh uh, half uh, of my interest is uh, as a theologian, very much aware of uh, where Dale Carnegie and his movement really fit within some of the most interesting theological currents of the 20th century, even though most people don't think of it that way. The other half was my own personal experience, because uh, as a very young man, indeed as a 15-year-old boy, I was handed uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People and uh, told that this book was very important to my uh, future and success. And it was given to me by someone whose theological worldview I think he didn't even recognize, was basically completely at odds with that of Dale Carnegie, which has led me to a very interesting uh, assessment of the fact that the influence of Dale Carnegie went well beyond the people who would have agreed with his worldview uh, because they basically uh, thought they agreed with his technique. Right, right. Well, I think that's an important distinction. And uh, I was just thinking, as you were talking, I uh, came at Carnegie from something of a different direction. I've taught a course for a number of years on success writing in America and various notions and paradigms of success and looked at people like Benjamin Franklin and Horatio Alger and so on. And uh, Carnegie, of course, in the 20th century had emerged as a major figure. And uh, I I came at him really from that direction, looking at his uh, famous book and his uh, teaching course and so on as as an example of this success tradition in America. So there are a lot of different ways to come at Carnegie. I think he was a, a central figure in that kind of way. Considering his influence uh, and considering the uh, the reverberations of his influence throughout the culture, how unlikely was it that this boy born in a very rural town in Missouri uh, would come to this kind of national and international prominence? Well, I think it's quite unlikely. Um, Carnegie, uh, as you mentioned briefly, uh, came from a kind of hard scrabble background in the rural Midwest, uh, out in, I guess, up in the northwest section of Missouri. Uh, grew up as a kid in the late 1800s, really still on the edge of the frontier, I think. His father was a poor farmer who struggled uh, to, to make a living as a farmer and not very successfully at that. And uh, came from a very tough background and uh, had to kind of climb his way up personally. 
uh, to success in America, and um, he sort of reversed the longstanding tradition in America of, of heading west, young man, by heading east, young man. Uh, he went to New York uh, in his 20s and sort of made fame and fortune there by reversing that process, basically. But uh, his personal story, I think, is quite remarkable as a success tale in its own right. Well, it is. And in one sense, as you made very clear in your book, his personal narrative is rather essential to understanding the development of his worldview, philosophy, and his approach to what became that most famous book and uh, the totality of what's associated with that name, Dale Carnegie. So maybe it would help just to kind of tell that story. Right. Well, Carnegie uh, came to success uh, actually in in a very sort of long and tangled fashion. Uh, As you know from reading the book, uh, it was not a quick process at all, but when he went to the East uh, to New York area, he went through quite a variety of jobs and tasks. Uh, he was a magazine writer. Uh, he was a failed novelist. Uh, he tried his hand at selling automobiles. Uh, he tried his luck as an actor, which is what he was really interested in at the beginning. And in all of these things, he was not very successful at all. And uh, finally, found his footing uh, really returning to something that he had uh, done very well at in college back in Missouri, and that is public speaking. And uh, he began to offer a course on public speaking through the YMCA in New York, uh, really as just a kind of way to keep body and soul together. And uh, he discovered that he had a kind of talent for this, and as the course grew, uh, he began to attract uh, a good deal of attention and um, uh, eventually sort of modified this course really into a success course, uh, how to develop your self-confidence, uh, how to use speaking in public as a kind of method uh, for uh, influencing people and putting yourself forward, having other people listen to you, uh, develop your personality, and so on. And by the 1930s, uh, he was very popular as a teacher, and uh, his book sprang out of that, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which was published uh, in, in the latter part of the 1930s, was really a collection of his uh, sort of presentations and, and uh, outlines from the Carnegie course. Uh, so he really rose to prominence in that kind of fashion, and it took quite some time. Professor Watts, in terms of your tracing of the story of Dale Carnegie, in your book you also make very clear he had this background of crushing poverty. And at one point in his life, uh, basically what we would now call high school, as I read your account, he discovered that he really did have the ability to do public speaking. And especially in college, uh, that came out where uh, he actually kind of ricocheted to, uh, to local celebrity as a speaker back when college education meant a, uh, a training and rhetoric and the, the expectation that a college graduate would be able to speak? Well, absolutely. Uh, he went to uh, college in the late 1800s, and as, uh, as he once uh, noted in his memoir, uh, in college one became kind of a big man on campus, either as an athlete or as uh, an orator, a public speaker, and he had no athletic talent whatsoever. So he went uh, down the public speaking route, and he proved to be very skillful as a public speaker. And uh, interestingly, I think he drew upon his mother uh, in that regard. Uh, His mother, who had been very influential in in his upbringing, had been a kind of lay preacher in the Methodist church uh, when he was a kid, and I think that kind of tradition uh, coming out of uh, the religious background he had uh, really helped move him along as a public speaker as well. So that was the place that he first uh, exhibited a kind of talent that would take him very far. Now, as I recall from your book, he, one of the first speeches he gave, if not the first oration, was actually on uh, uh, the devil and, uh, and demon alcohol. Yes, uh, his mother uh, was very involved in uh, the temperance movement uh, there in northwest Missouri and in central Missouri when they moved a little bit later. And he grew up very much in that kind of uh, tradition. And uh, he he read uh, the kind of anti-liquor literature that his mother had uh, around the house. And uh, I think even as a kid, he had been involved in some church meetings and so on. Uh, and I think that led quite naturally to the kind of uh, temperance uh, speech that you refer to. That was uh, part of, I think, 
his uh, cultural background, actually. When you cover his college years, you actually do get to some very serious theological issues, uh, even in brief, when you mention the fact that even though Dale Carnegie had been born uh, into a rather traditional rural household, an agrarian household, the mother and father uh, who were uh, long married to each other, and and, uh, then you had the development of of his mother's faith, very much a part of his life, this Methodist uh, upbringing and context— but when he got to college uh, there in Missouri, he really began to question those uh, traditional Christian beliefs with which he had been raised. Well, that's right. When uh, he went to uh, central, what is now Central Missouri State uh, in Warrensburg, Missouri, which was then at uh, one of the uh, teachers' colleges in the state, I think like many young people who uh, are of that age, he had a kind of crisis of faith I think that was wrapped up with his education and things he was learning and uh, kind of challenges to many of the things that he had taken for granted as a kid. And uh, I think he, again, I think like a lot of uh, youngsters that age, uh, this became a kind of rebellion against his parents. And he and his mother sort of engaged over a number of years, a kind of running dialogue or even argument about uh, the uh, merits of of traditional Protestantism that he had been raised with. And as an adult, really, I think uh, Carnegie, while he had a kind of respect for traditional Christianity uh, throughout most of his adult life, uh, he, he sort of drifted away from it, I think, in a fairly definite way until later in in life when he returned, at least in a fashion. Well, that's a very interesting point, and and even uh, that returning in a fashion is uh, is interesting theologically. But I think what really is important from your book uh, in terms of of uh, theology or or theological issues is the fact that this this challenge of faith, this crisis of faith that happened to Dale Carnegie as a late adolescent— really in many ways opened his uh, his worldview to what later became filled by the New Thought Movement. And, uh, and in terms of, uh, of American religious history, the kind of, uh, of, of rather Christian-ish transcendentalism, that is, most of it made some right. reference to Christianity, but it, right. was, uh, it was a Christianity devoid of all of its traditional doctrines. Right, I think that's a very uh, keen observation. Uh, I think in the 19th century, the the kind of tradition in which Carnegie grew up, there was a kind of tight linkage between traditional Christian theology and and really moral principles of self-control, upright moral character, and so on. And I think the rebellion that he manifested against uh, the theological aspects of his upbringing did create a kind of vacuum, and uh, I think with Carnegie, it's like uh, with many others in the early part of the 20th century, what you see moving into its place are very various kinds of, I, I would call them therapeutic uh, sorts of doctrines of one kind Absolutely. or another, and I think uh, uh, the um, uh, positive thought movement uh, and so on were all, were all part of uh, that larger uh, that larger impulse that you just identified. Well, one of the things I most appreciate about your book is how you place Carnegie in terms of intellectual history and the flow of American thought and the larger cultural trends. And on page 130 of your book, you write, perhaps the most striking element of modernity for young Carnegie was an intellectual movement overhauling the understanding of human nature and behavior in the early 20th century. You say that was psychology, of course. And as you get to psychology, you actually, before even turning uh, explicitly to theology, you deal with this new thought movement. As a theologian, I find that very interesting. And I think most Americans, including most American Christians, who think they know American religious history, aren't aware of the fact that this new thought movement was a kind of a common context, a common medium, in which you had so many of these groups and movements that uh, that emerged from Christian science to uh, to, uh, well, you could draw a direct line from much of this to Oprah Winfrey, and uh, and then, of course, uh, you've got the, the positive thinking movement as well. Yes, and that uh, whole cluster of uh, developments and ideas that you just referred to is one that I've found very interesting as well. Uh, I think, as you note, with uh, the kind of transformation of traditional Protestantism that we see in the culture in the early 20th century, you do see the New Thought movement, uh, positive thinking, uh, other kinds of movements as well that really emerge, I think, trying to create, in a fashion, a kind of substitute 
for for the moral principles of traditional uh, Christian practice and life. And it really does head, I think, in a very strongly therapeutic uh, direction that becomes very psychologized uh, very, very quickly. Uh, psychological explanations, I think, of human behavior emerge with greater and greater force almost as a kind of substitute for religious explanations of that behavior. And I think the, the cultural manifestations of that were absolutely profound. Uh, it changed, changed the game dramatically in American culture. You really didn't trace uh, many of these elements too far in the book, and I understand why, given your, your following of the uh, narrative of Dale Carnegie and, and focusing on him in particular in terms of cultural impact. But right. you do mention people like Phineas P. Quimby, who someone needs to write the great American biography of Phineas P. Quimby. Uh, because he's the father of so many of these movements and uh, and actually, of course, was even uh, closely, intimately related to uh, Mary Baker Eddy. Right, yeah, he's a very fascinating figure, and uh, I, I sort of agree with you. I think a good biography would probably uh, uh, be an, in addition to our knowledge in, the, in that regard. Well, very just, important figure. Yeah, I just think most people aren't aware of the fact that there are some incredibly common roots to so many of these things, and even someone like Oprah Winfrey uh, now... Perhaps, uh, and even as the, your, your book cover makes clear, perhaps the uh, living exemplar of so much of this worldview today, uh, I, I, I wonder if she actually understands where so much of it came from, uh, just in terms of that 19th century context. Right. Yeah, I suspect that uh, Winfrey and other people, I think, in that broad vein of, of sort of modern therapeutic doctrine probably don't uh, realize uh, the background from which they sprang. Uh, I think they tend to think of themselves as, uh, you know, creating this stuff out of whole cloth when, in fact, there's a not a long but at least a substantial historical background to it. And actually, I think that's one of the things that drew me to Carnegie is that uh, the more I read him and the more I studied the historical context, I became convinced that in a lot of ways, Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People was really the sort of ur-text uh, for all of these therapeutic success models that have emerged in modern America. And I think he's the guy in a lot of ways that uh, built yes. the foundation that a lot of this is built on. No, I think you're exactly right. That's why I was so interested in your book. And I also have to say that I think that the intellectual fault here runs both ways. I think there are certainly many people who think uh, that uh, that they're just making this up as they go along without realizing this new thought background that uh, right. that they're basically drawing upon. But I think the opposite problem is probably more common, at least amongst the people I know, who think that this movement more or less has just kind of always been there, that these thoughts have always been culturally accessible, when that's not true. In fact, uh, I think one of the great merits of your book is how you show this great late Victorian turn from more traditional forms of thought explicitly shaped by traditional Christian doctrines to right. uh, to a very different uh, set of intellectual assumptions that people began to take as normal. Well, yes, I, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, actually, the burden of much of my teaching, uh, the various classes that I teach in, in whatever the, the setting or the specifics may be, I often make a very big hinge in, in my class, this kind of transformation from the Victorian 19th century to the modern uh, 20th century. And I think that that shift that takes place in the late 1800s and early 1900s uh, really does create modern American culture and, and sort of the modern set of values. And they are quite different from what came before. Um, the only other thing I would toss into the mix here is that uh, I also think there's an economic dimension to this in that I think the kind of cultural transformation we've been discussing here was also accompanied by a very significant economic shift, and that is the creation of consumer culture, a consumer economy uh, at this very same time. And I think in, in myriad fascinating ways, the therapeutic culture of self-fulfillment is, is very tightly connected to that kind of economic shift as well. The fact is, most Americans have heard the name Dale Carnegie, and if they associate that name with something, it's with How to Win Friends and Influence People. And if they associate that book with American culture, they probably place it in that economic culture, the business culture of America, especially at the midpoint of the 20th century. But the story's older than that, and it's a lot more interesting than that.
That economic shift raises the whole question of why we're talking about Dale Carnegie, because uh, I, I think most people, when they hear Dale Carnegie, think of him in basically an economic context. Uh, I think they think of him as uh, as part of the, uh, the business uh, culture, especially modern American business culture as it emerged in the early 20th century, and uh, individualism, the rise of modern advertising, consumerism, and especially the cult of the professional self. Well, I think you're right, and I mean, Carnegie usually gets uh, sort of pigeonholed as uh, uh, a kind of spokesman for uh, fairly crude notions of material success uh, in modern America and so on, and, uh, and you know, I think there's a certain validity to that, but, well, as we've been discussing, though, I think there's a lot more to it than simply that. Um, you know, what I find fascinating in terms of this kind of economic connection is that Carnegie, I think the burden of his argument, the burden of his book really is about creating a personality that is attractive and compelling and charismatic. And it's the connection of those personality traits, I think, to success and also the connection of personality to consumer abundance uh, that is uh, really fascinating and sort of complicated and interesting. Uh, but, it, you know, it's much more, I think, than simply how to get more money and how to become rich and all of that kind of thing. It's a, it's a very uh, dynamic and complex cultural process. Absolutely. It's quite intriguing. Yeah, I think it is very intriguing, and I think you're right. However, my guess is that especially when uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People hit the paperback medium and, and exploded into the multiple thousands of readers, uh, I think it's hard to separate that from the kind of economic incentive that uh, that led the book to my hands when I was a 15-year-old boy when uh, a family friend said, you're going someplace, this will help you to get there, and uh, this is how I became, as he said, a master salesman. It was by reading this book and learning its its techniques. Well, I think you're right, of course, and I think in, in a fashion that was true from the very, very beginning because uh, it's kind of easy to forget that the uh, book originally came out uh, pretty much in the heart of the Great Depression. And uh, I think a lot of the, the people who were attracted to Carnegie's book were sort of white-collar workers in these big bureaucratic institutions, uh, some of whom perhaps may have lost their jobs, others who were fearful of losing their jobs, who were very concerned about uh, material success, but in a very direct way, more or less, of survival. So I think that that uh, more direct link is also there for the very beginning, of course, as well. I and mean, I think you're right. It would be sort of silly not to, not to keep that in mind anyway. So coming out of the Great Depression, looking backwards at Dale Carnegie's life, by the way, as you document in your book, he, he shifted the spelling of his name and the pronunciation of his name so that okay. it uh, it actually, he argued, was easier for Americans, but also, as you point out, uh, identified him in some very uh, conscious way with uh, one of his heroes, Andrew Carnegie. Absolutely. Originally, the name had been Carnegie, and it was spelled uh, C-A-R-N-A-Y-G-A-Y. And uh, when he went to New York, I think the shrewd young man that he was, he saw that there was some... Uh, advantage to be had by changing the spelling and I found it fascinating too maybe a, a bit of a, a psychological stretch perhaps that removing that nay N-A-Y from the middle of his name sort of comported with uh, the uh, embrace of positive thinking as well yeah. so uh, in, in an indirect way that may have had something to do with it as well. Well as one uh, one European philosopher put it the self existed before the 20th century but not quite as conscious as the self knew itself in the 20th century and if there is any self very aware of self it was Dale Carnegie and I went back in preparation for this conversation to read uh, how to win friends and influence people and I have to tell you uh, professor Watts, that that's a, an almost intellectually embarrassing uh, endeavor because you read it and 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 I I just find it hard to believe anyone could have written so straightforwardly, things that now appear to be so manipulative and and so self-consciously artificial. Right. Well, you know what's fascinating to me is uh, when I've used that book in in some classes that I teach, uh, it's always a book that I get a lot of discussion out of because I find that the students disagree violently about Dale Carnegie and arguments break out, uh, you know, healthy ones. 
because it's usually the case that about half the class thinks that Dale Carnegie's uh, injunctions and recommendations in that book are wonderful and sort of common sense and really a sort of pathway to, to getting ahead. And uh, the other half of the class reacted just as you mentioned. They find it manipulative and uh, sort of slightly dishonest in, in certain ways. And, uh, you know, it's like you want to keep your hand on your wallet when you're around uh, someone like that. So there's a great division of opinion about this, but I think that sort of reflects perhaps some fault lines in our culture sure. uh, as well. But you had traced in, in the book uh, thus far, just as a biography, here you have uh, Andrew Carnegie, who is a young man, uh, fails as a salesman, and then finds radical success uh, as a salesman for the Armor Meat Company there in, in Nebraska. And then he right. leaves that to go to theatrical school, and then uh, he, he begins teaching public speaking. He ends up being an expatriate writer as a failed novelist uh, in the lost generation, comes back to the United States, <laughs> uh, befriends people like Lowell Thomas, becomes a, kind of a part of the cultural conversation, and then in 1936 lands this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And uh, was Dale Carnegie, you think, as surprised by the sales of that book as everyone, including his publisher, was? Well, I think he was genuinely astonished. Uh, in many ways, uh, for all of uh, the manipulative quality of some of the things that he wrote, I think in a certain way, Dale Carnegie was a very authentic and sort of a regular Midwesterner. And uh, I think genuinely, he did not expect the book to explode on the scene as it did. Uh, uh, my reading of the evidence that's there is that he, as well as his publisher, expected maybe a kind of modest success, that it would sell, you know, maybe twenty, thirty, forty thousand copies, and they would all make a little money and a uh, little fame off of it, and everyone would go home happy. But I think he had no idea in the world that that book would become the bestseller that it did and go on to be one of the best-selling uh, nonfiction books in American history, I think, selling eventually some 30-odd million copies. I think never in his wildest dreams did he imagine that. Uh, never in the wildest dreams of most modern writers of fiction or nonfiction are those kind of numbers still contemplated. We're talking about something stratospheric. As you document, in the first several months, it sold 650,000 hardback copies, and then within the first decade, 5 million copies. And uh, I don't know if Dale Carnegie actually knew how to win friends and influence people, but he sure knew how to sell books. Well, he did. And um, a friend of mine not long ago actually uh, looked up the Carnegie book in terms of modern sales figures, and I think it's, uh, he said that he found it was still one of the top 100 best-selling books at this moment as we speak, and, you know, for a book that was written in the late 1930s, that's pretty astonishing. Well, it is. I want to go back to something you said about your class and the division the book causes in your class, because I, I want to admit to you uh, and to listeners that uh, the book causes a bit of a divide in me. Uh -huh. uh, because uh, a part of me is still the 15-year-old who was handed that book and devoured it and realized, wow, there are a lot of things here I needed to know. Uh, I mean, right. uh, j just how, uh, how to respond to someone, how to, uh, how to keep a conversation going, uh, how to shake a hand, uh, how, to, uh, how to understand the importance of an individual's name. And ego right. and all, the, all these things, they really are important. They're, they're kind of what my grandfather called consecrated common sense. Someone shouldn't have to tell you this, but evidently they did. Right. The other part does horrify me uh, because <laughs> as I look at it, I recognize the worldview behind it. And I, the more I read it, especially now reading it uh, 40 years after that first time, I see that new thought worldview just bleeding through in virtually every right. paragraph. Right. Well, my reaction actually is much like yours. I have very deeply divided feelings about it as well. Uh, I guess in a practical vein, um, a few years ago I was the chairman of my department here at the university where I teach for a couple of terms, and uh, I found myself not really on purpose, but almost uh, unconsciously, I think, in uh, directing the department and dealing with faculty members, uh, many of whom are you know, just a bit outspoken and uh, have fairly healthy yes. egos and all that kind of thing. 
relying on some of the uh, principles that Carnegie talked about in that book about you know letting other people have credit, let other people think the idea is theirs, uh, you know make people feel worthwhile, uh, try to draw people out, don't push yourself forward. You know a lot of this is sort of common sense. I think of human relations in in a positive sense of that term. Yes. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, in a historic or, or cultural sense, I think when you look at the implications of, of some of what he's saying, and uh, I think even a, a moral critique of one kind or another, there are some sort of uh, troubling aspects of it, definitely, that uh, give me a problem as well. I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. Let me tell you, I, I've often had the thought, to be honest, especially reading your book and going back to read uh, the Dale Carnegie's uh, bestseller. I, I did have the thought, and I, I, I didn't expect to say this in public, but here I am. I had the thought, this is a horrifying book. It's manipulative. It's, uh, it's filled with heresy, and I know people who need to read it. Uh, <laughs> because there is that part of common sense. You realize, you know, one of the reasons Dale Carnegie, I think, was so influential is because he told people things that they did know they needed to know, uh, especially. And, and I want to offer this as something you really didn't deal with in your book, but I, I want to see if, 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 if you would agree with this. It seemed to me that a part of this is also here you have a young man from the Midwest from a very impoverished background. He lands in the sophisticated land of Manhattan as a very young man. There were things he had to learn in a hurry. I, I think a part of what uh, I, I thought of in, in terms of reading your excellent book is that you had an awful lot of young Americans moving to the city where they had to develop relationships with people they didn't know, where they were outside of kinship structures. And it struck me that, that, that that's a part of this story as well. Well, I think it is. The urban context of modern life and uh, you know the sheer magnitude uh, of it, uh, the numbers of people that you encounter in the modern world, in the workplace for many, many people, as well as where you live, I think all of that stuff uh, exerts enormous pressures on uh, the development of personality and personal traits that make it easier for you to get along with other people. And uh, I think the common sense aspects of Carnegie's books are very much rooted in that kind of thing. And uh, I would pretty much agree agree with you about that. Uh, I, I think uh, I also know people that I've often thought they, they would benefit from a close reading of the Carnegie book. And I guess the thing that I would add, too, is that in a certain sense, at least for portions of that book, the advice is really a kind of variation on the golden rule of, uh, you know, treating other people as you would like to be treated and respecting other people and, uh, you know, giving other people their due and giving them room to express themselves and, you know, these kinds of things. And up to a certain point, I think the book is fine. And there's even a kind of innocence to it, I think, that uh, is very attractive in that way. But, I, but then, as you note, that uh, it's a good deal more than that as well. Your book answered a question I had, however, along those lines, and that was whether or not the book was controversial uh, when it first arrived in the late 1930s. And you made clear it actually was. There, there were those who responded to his book not, not just with dismissal or condescension, but with moral revulsion. Yes, that's certainly true. I think the broad situation when the book was published is that for a kind of popular audience who was gobbling it up, uh, it was just accepted uncritically. But there were two groups, I think, uh, who had big problems with it. Uh, one was, uh, I guess, what I would call sort of the intellectual class, uh, the kind of book review class, if you will, uh, who reviewed that book for some fairly highfalutin journals and, and magazines and so on. And uh, How to Win Friends got a great deal of criticism for being, uh, I think one of the critics called it a book on the science of tail wagging and you know, how to suck up to other people and how to uh, simply uh, sort of comport yourself in such a way that, uh, you know, uh, you could uh, have people do what you want by by shamelessly flattering them and that kind of thing. Uh, so there was a kind of contempt almost. Uh, uh, Sinclair Lewis, for example, wrote an extremely critical uh, uh, review of the book. The other group, of course, is, I think, more traditional religious and moral groups, uh, and you see some evidence of that in reviews that were written, a uh, kind of outrage that there was in that book too little recognition of moral principles and sort of uh, the character 
they just found the book appalling for deserting uh, that kind of uh, traditional standard as well. So in uh, terms of, of critical reception, I think it was decidedly mixed uh, when it came out. And has continued, by the way, as well. In terms of the 20th century, one of the most significant uh, intellectual developments in the United States was the, the rise of uh, what Philip Reef calls psychological man. The uh, rejection of the Christian worldview and its historic understanding of humanity and a, a new anthropology, basically, uh, based upon a much uh, a much rosier scenario, a, a, an idea of human innocence and human perfectibility. And you make very clear in your book, and that's one of the credits of the book, that you can't talk about Dale Carnegie without talking about his direct appropriation of psychological man. And uh, the the very early 20th century uh, psychologist, I would say, into the mid-20th century in terms of his writings. Uh, You're absolutely right in my opinion about that. Uh, One thing that struck me as I studied Carnegie and his writings and put this book together was the way in which he, I think, was one of the great popular psychologists of American culture in the early decades of the century, up into the middle part of the century, and I think he is a major figure, particularly in terms of popular audiences, in basically, uh, as, as one historian put it, uh, replacing morality with psychology as a way to understand human behavior and motivation. And uh, I think looking at how to win friends from that point of view is very, very illuminating, because I think clearly in the text, what you see is precisely that. There's a kind of psychological rendering of uh, human behavior, of human motivation, of really human uh, standing in the world that uh, replaces, I think, a moral one from an earlier tradition. And uh, that shift again from one to the other, I think, is a very, very important one for understanding uh, where we're at today in the country. As a theologian, uh, I am very interested in your conclusion, uh, because I was aching for it. And uh, (laughs) if anything, I wish your conclusion were even longer, because you do explicitly draw the tie and and make very clear that this this New Thought movement, uh, positive thinking, uh, the the self-reliance, the advertising culture, the consumer culture, it all came together in ways in which, uh, for instance, uh, you can very well trace from Phineas Quimby eventually to Norman Vincent Peale to Robert Schuller to Joel Osteen. And uh, you can see many of these same techniques, and you can see the same worldview. If anything, even as Dale Carnegie's book may be less read, uh, I would argue his ideas and the ideas that he represented are now far more pervasive than they were even during his own lifetime. Oh, I think absolutely so. Um, as you note in the conclusion of that book, uh, or of my book, um, the one thing I did try to draw very explicitly was this connection between Carnegie as, I, I think, a kind of path-breaking figure in creating the new therapeutic culture, and then all of the manifestations of it that I think flowered uh, after his death, actually, in the early 1950s, where you do have people like uh, Norman Vincent Peale and Tony Robbins and Oprah Winfrey and Stephen Covey and on and on and on, great variety of uh, sort of therapeutic figures moving out into American culture. And you have the tentacles of this kind of worldview, I think, uh, reaching out in nearly every direction and into the depths of what we do and what we think. And you see the manifestations of it, I think, uh, the therapeutic view of, of, of man in education, uh, you see it in religion, of course, I think even as you mentioned, in politics, everywhere you look, I think, and, and without doubt, in my opinion, I think it's much more pervasive than it had been earlier in the century. And the story of its development, I think, in a lot of ways, is the story of modern American culture. When you come to the end of the book, you render a verdict of sorts. Uh, you state uh, that uh, undeniably you believe that Dale Carnegie and his, uh, his methodology, his worldview, made a contribution to American culture. But uh, on the next to last page of your book, you say that uh, that an, an actual uh, healthy, uh, accurate understanding of human life and human nature would also recognize duty uh, as dysfunction, achievement as well as angst, the value of a useful life as well as recovery from emotional distress, the need for limitation as well as endless self-fulfillment. So, uh, in your view, the final verdict on Dale Carnegie and his worldview? 
Well, I think what I wrote there was a pretty accurate summation of it from my point of view. Uh, I guess as a historian and at least something of a cultural critic, uh, things almost always seem very complicated to me, that it's not usually a simple conclusion of right or wrong, good and bad. Uh, and I think Carnegie in many ways replicates that. I think on the one hand, the kind of worldview, the kind of therapeutic sensibility that he pushed forward does have, in my view, certain positive aspects to it. I think it um, sort of increases our sensitivity to human pain and suffering and, and uh, I think the complicated ways emotionally in which uh, people have to deal with the world around them. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that therapeutic sensibility has come at a very heavy price, and that is that I think it discourages uh, a kind of formation of morality in any shape, way, or form, uh, sort of non-judgmentalism itself has become uh, a kind of a standard, uh, so any kind of moral principle, I think, is almost alien in the modern world. I think it encourages a kind of victimhood, victimization, uh, sensibility. I think it encourages people to be emotional solely, almost, rather than rational, and I think it just throws a monkey wrench into that kind of balanced view of, of human beings and human behavior that we really ought to have. So I think we have paid a heavy price uh, for the therapeutic culture that people like Dale Carnegie have created, and uh, we continue to do so. Professor Watts, you have written biographies of Walt Disney, Henry Ford, Hugh Hefner, and now Dale Carnegie. Uh, and, and I think what's fascinating about all four of those is you actually can't discuss uh, modern America without uh, any one of them. So uh, who might be next? Well, actually, I've, I've been working for the last year or so on a, on a book that should be out within a couple of years. I, I've turned to the political uh, dimension, I think, of this modern culture of uh, sort of self-fulfillment and consumerism. I've been writing a cultural study of John F. Kennedy and the way I think Kennedy as a cultural figure rather than a political one necessarily represents uh, certain political manifestations and these kind of broader themes that I've been exploring. So I'm kind of uh, in that project uh, to my neck uh, right as we speak. Well, I understand what that must feel like, and uh, just having finished a book project myself, uh, I understand uh, both the burden and the joy of it, but I want to tell you that I'm already looking forward to that next book because of the quality of this one, Self-Help Messiah, Dale Carnegie, and Success in Modern America. Professor Watts, thank you so much for joining me for Thinking in Public. Uh, Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Many thanks again to my guest, Professor Stephen Watts, for thinking with me today. When you think about the 20th century and you think about the vast intellectual, social, and cultural challenges that happened in that century, you can't talk about the time without certain individuals. Henry Ford, for example, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or someone like Dale Carnegie. You can't talk about the 20th century without talking about some of the figures who so decisively shaped not only the times, but the thinking of the times. And when it comes to how Americans think, few people were so self-consciously involved in shaping that mind, as was Dale Carnegie. Professor Watts helped us really to understand how biography also plays into the development of worldview. Here you have this boy born in crushing and indeed bone-crushing poverty. There in rural Missouri, who wants to make something of himself, who is at war on poverty in terms of his own mind, and a poverty he associated with that of spirit as well as of substance. And then you have the story, very paradigmatic of the 20th century, kind of a Horatio Alger tale of a a young man who leaves that very rural, impoverished background and goes to make his way in the world, and it just so happened, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century in modern America. And when we talk about modern America, it's really only modern at about that point. Because as Professor Watson, his book makes very clear, the great intellectual worldview turn even then was taking place in America, a turn in the late Victorian age away from a worldview that had been explicitly founded upon Christian truth and upon Christian doctrine, a worldview that was very much accountable to Scripture and to a very inherited worldview that that basically stated that human beings 
in terms of the biblical anthropology, are to be understood as sinners, and morality is understood as central then to society and necessary for cultural cohesion, and a worldview in which the individual was important, but important mostly in terms of the whole. By the time you come to the early 20th century, a rugged individualism has taken place, an individualism that's not just reflected in the fact that you have philosophies of individualism, you also have an economy of individualism. You have the economic self-develop. You have not only psychological man, as Philip Reef described him, you have economic man, an economic American, who all of a sudden emerges. You have modern advertising. As Professor Watts makes very clear, advertising in the past, that is in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, was basically about function. You needed to buy this because it would do that. But by the time you get to the early decades of the 20th century, Advertising is about lifestyle aspiration. It's about the invention of the self. Advertisers are not so much that you need this in order to do that, but that you need to be this kind of person, and buying this product will make you the kind of person you want to be. And, of course, when you look at business culture, you have the rise of the modern economy where people are buying cars and leaving behind horses, and they're leaving behind an old world and entering into a new world, and it just seemed to make sense to many people that you leave the old worldview behind with the technologies and the artifacts of that old world. And especially if you're someone like Dale Carnegie, who associated that old world with bone-crushing poverty, and who saw the new world as a land of great and almost unlimited opportunity. On the other hand, when you look at the worldview issues that are involved, they're monumental, they're massive, and uh, they are absolutely so consequential that Christians, intelligent Christians, need to give a lot of attention to this. Even those modern American Christians, evangelicals, who look at popular culture and try to understand it and understand there are deep ideological and worldview issues at stake, many of them are actually unaware of the kind of historical forces that shape the modern world or the postmodern world as we now know it. But when you look at someone like Dale Carnegie, you have to look backwards. You can't talk about someone like Dale Carnegie without talking about the rise of psychology, and you can't talk about the rise of modern psychology without the rise of the New Thought movement, which actually preceded it. That's something that we have to keep in mind. The the modern psychological development came after the development of New Thought. That came first. Many people looking at so-called now pop psychology think, well, psychology has come to this. No, it was the New Thought movement that got there before psychology. And that New Thought movement was explicitly religious. As I said in my conversation with Professor Watts, it was uh, Christian-ish in some sense. In other words, it had some link. Most of these movements had some link to Christianity. Even Mary Baker Eddy named her New Thought movement Christian Science, translating historical Christianity into this new modern mind science of her own design. And, of course, you're talking there about the influence, once again, of Phineas Quimby, who himself is inseparable from the story of Mary Baker Eddy. But then he's also inseparable from Dale Carnegie and from the development of all that came thereafter. You can draw a line, as we have said, from Phineas Quimby, eventually to Norman Vincent Peale, and to that kind of positive thinking that invaded American theological circles and became very popular, so popular that you can draw a direct line from Norman Vincent Peale to Robert Schuller, who was in actuality his disciple. And then you can draw a line from both Norman Vincent Peale to Robert Schuller to Joel Osteen. And so when you turn on the television today or when you look at the modern media and you see the people who are very much on the American religious landscape today, there is a pedigree behind them. And a part of that pedigree is Dale Carnegie. One of the most interesting things to me in looking at the entire phenomenon of Dale Carnegie is how much of what he has written, for instance, in that best-selling book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is just common sense, uh, the kind of common sense people really do need to know. And yet it is infused with so much manipulative self-worship. So much of the self-actualization philosophy, so much of the new age thinking, the new thought world, well, you look at that and you recognize there's no way to separate the kernel and the husk. It's all one thing. And that new thought worldview so pervades the entire system of thought that when you're looking at Dale Carnegie, you're looking at Joel Osteen or Robert Schuller or Norman Vincent Peale or Oprah Winfrey or Tony Robbins or any number of these people, you're looking at more of a shared worldview than you're looking at differences. You're looking at more commonalities than you are looking at distinctives. You're looking at the fact that the basic break that was made with the inherited worldview was a break with the historic Christian understanding of the human being, the historic Christian biblical anthropology. Because what is common to virtually all these people and the worldviews they represent is the rejection of that old biblical anthropology and the embrace of a new understanding of human potential of the centrality of the individual and the perfection of the personality and the self as a project. That's a very important issue. 
You know, the Bible makes very clear that there is a proper individualism in terms of our understanding that every single individual human being is made in God's image. But that individualism is placed within the context of a biblical worldview that puts severe limitations upon what we should expect in terms of the development of that individual self. And the Bible does not present the self as a self-project. And that's the great break. Because most of the people we encounter in everyday life actually do think of their own life, of their own self, as a project. A project under their own control, a project under their own supervision, a project basically accountable to nothing other than their own self-actualization. One of the main points made in the book and also in the conversation with Professor Watts is the point that what was replaced in terms of this new science of the self was the old morality, because this new worldview displaced morality in favor of self-actualization, in favor of the goals and purposes of the self-project, and, of course, with the confidence that the self could actually pull this off. Dale Carnegie himself believed that his own lifetime, his own life story, actually validated his philosophy. Here you had this boy in Crushing Poverty who ends up on the bestseller list, writing one of the best-selling books in all of American history, and, of course, with the material benefits that came with it. The story of his personal life in terms of intimate details is also recorded in this book, Self-Help Messiah, But the main story is the impact of Dale Carnegie on the larger culture. And that story isn't over. The book comes to a conclusion. And to his credit, Professor Watts does give an evaluative, critical conclusion. I think most of us are going to want to take the points he raises there even further. Because those of us who are operating from a Christian worldview understand that they're actually very important at a more fundamental and even deeper level. And furthermore, when you read this book and the story of Dale Carnegie, you know that personally, his project's going to come to an end. His lifetime's going to come to an end. His death is recorded in this book. But if anything is made clear in terms of your reading of the story, it will be this. The man has died, but his ideas live on. Dale Carnegie is a finished project, but Dale Carnegie's ideas are now a part of millions of projects, individual projects of countless Americans and people around the world who consider themselves about the very same thing, following the very same goals, trying to use the very same techniques, trying to perfect and to project the self. One final thought, in a world in which people are wondering if books still matter, just think about the impact of this one book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, now having sold so many millions of copies that it's hard even to keep track. And just imagine the impact of that book, not only in the culture at large, but in countless millions of individual lives. Thanks for joining me today for Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.